This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. This is Season 5 of Office Hours. Our theme is New Life in the Shadow of Death. We're talking about sanctification, the teaching of Scripture that believers in Christ freely accepted by God for Christ's sake alone and united to Christ through faith alone are being gradually and graciously conformed to Christ. One aspect of our new life in Christ to which modern evangelical and Reformed Christians have not always paid a great deal of attention is the matter of virtue. There are some good reasons for this. The medieval church came to think that we are accepted by God, by grace, and cooperation with grace through the formation of virtue in us. So, John Calvin wrote to King Francis in his preface to the Institutes of the Christian Religion, For what accords better and more aptly with faith than to acknowledge ourselves divested of all virtue, that we may be clothed by God, devoid of all goodness, that we may be filled by Him, the slaves of sin, that He may give us freedom, blind, that He may enlighten, lame, that He may cure, and feeble, that He may sustain us, to strip ourselves of all ground of glorying, that He alone may shine forth glorious and we be glorified in him. And when it comes to justification, all the Protestants said, Amen. Yet, they said more than this about virtue. And virtue is being formed in those who have been freely accepted by God on the ground of Christ's righteousness imputed alone, through faith alone. Here to help us understand how we should and shouldn't think about virtue in the Christian life is Dr. David Vendrunen, the Robert B. Strimple Professor of Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics. He's author of, co-editor, and contributor to several books, including Living in God's Two Kingdoms. This, with other faculty titles, is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, David, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks. Good to be here. In the Latin translation of Scripture, which was used by the Western Church for most of a millennium before the Reformation, where the Greek New Testament says dunamis, which is often translated power, the Latin Bible uses virtue. And so, for example, in the Gospels, uh, it's used to describe the acts of power or the mighty works that the Lord performed. In some cases, the Lord says, you know, when you come to me and say, look at the things that we did in your name, virtue is used for that. But it's also used to describe the works of the Holy Spirit in Acts. Paul uses it to describe the power of the Lord in Romans 1 and in Romans 9. And then he also uses it to describe the presence and the effect and the powerful working of the Spirit amongst God's people who are confessing and believing in Christ. For example, he speaks of the power of Christ resting in him and the working of his power in Ephesians 3, 7. That's also 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And then finally, relative to believers in Ephesians 6, 10, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power or virtue in the Latin Bible. And we could look to maybe, as we discuss at Philippians 4, there are certain things that we ought to think about and meditate on. So, All this leads up to this question. 
virtue was a big part of the life of the church and the vocabulary of the church before the Reformation. What happened to it? Well, there's really a long story. It goes back to the ancient Greek philosophers. It wasn't as if the medieval Christians or patristic Christians were the first to, to think about virtue, and the story of virtue has gone on really ever since. And when we come to the Reformation, there is certainly a lot of critical look at medieval assumptions about virtue, uh, in which, I guess, just to, to, to get to the core, where virtue, the growth in virtue, was part of this process of sanctification, which was part of the process of justification, by which one became the kind of person who could do meritorious works, which contributed to his or her attainment of everlasting life. And so there's certainly a very strong critique of this idea of virtue as a meritorious ground for salvation. But what you do find in a lot of Reformed theologians is a continuing interest in virtue. You don't find the same interest in all of them, certainly, but you can read a lot of Reformed theologians who will give extended space to virtue when they're discussing, for example, the Ten Commandments, or they're discussing prayer. And really, this idea of virtue has to do with traits of character. They're habits of a sort, but they're good habits. They're certain orientations of our soul, of our being, of our mind and heart uh, toward what is good. And that was a real concern for a lot of Reformed theologians. Now, I don't know how far you want me to extend this story, but over the last couple of centuries, the predominant moral theories that have dominated Western society are those that stem from the the philosophy of Immanuel Kant and that from utilitarianism. And there are probably a lot of listeners who, who don't know what that refers to. And the important thing to know is that virtue did not play an important role uh, for those two moral theories that have been really important in the Western world over the last couple of centuries. And so really discussion about virtue fell off the radar screens of a lot of people, uh, Christians and non-Christians alike, in talking about ethics. But there has been a sort of renaissance of interest in virtue of late. So it's a complicated story about the place of virtue in ethical theory. You gave us a thumbnail characterization definition of virtue. Do that again, and then let's back up and contrast that a little bit with what Kant said and what utilitarianism says. Okay. If you're thinking about ethics in terms of virtue, or at least if that's an important part of the way you talk about ethics, what you're saying is is that the moral life is not simply about rules. It's not simply about external actions that we perform, but it's about what kind of a person you are. There's an understanding that the way we're put together as human beings means that the way we are oriented or the way we're bent as people affects the way we act. Just to give a very mundane example, we all know every one of us has habits. We have good habits, we have bad habits. But if you just think about, if you have a habit of getting off the freeway at a certain exit, when you're coming home from work every day, you get off at this exit off the freeway. You you have a habit, you have a certain orientation towards this kind of conduct. And we've probably all had the experience where, you know, you're driving home one day and you're not going to go directly home. You, you You need to stop at the store, so you need to get off at a different exit. And what do you do? You just get off at the exit that you normally get off of. Why is that? It's because we have a certain habit, we have a certain trait of character that to perform a certain action. Now, you know, that's not really, we wouldn't talk about that as really a virtue or vice getting off at a certain exit, but virtues and vices function in something of the same way. They orient us towards good or bad uh, behavior. 
And what a lot of even non-Christian philosophers have recognized, but also what we find in Scripture is an interest in the inner person as well as the external conduct, an interest in the heart and not simply in what we perform externally. Now, for Immanuel Kant, I'll just try to be brief, for Kant, ethics is about duty. It's about doing uh, your obligation according to the moral law. And Kant didn't really think that a discussion of virtue was really very important. It didn't play a central part in his thinking about ethics. For utilitarianism, that basically says that what is right or wrong is that which promotes the most pleasure, the most happiness, and prevents the most pain. And so there again, you're not really looking at virtue per se. You're looking much more about external conduct and whether it brings good results the way we would understand them, bringing pleasure, happiness. Calvin makes a lot of people who confuse vice for virtue and that they make virtues out of vices. As we're thinking about defining virtue, how do we distinguish virtue and vice? And is there an objective definition for both of them? Well, that's an interesting question because there are a lot of times in which there may seem to be a very fine line between a virtue and a vice, right? What's the line between courage as a virtue and recklessness as a vice? Sometimes we might think of vices as exhibiting a sort of one-sided exhibition of a certain virtue, a certain virtue without proper moderation or without proper perspective. But what I would say is that virtues and vices are similar in that they are both character traits. They're both a kind of habit. Virtues are habits or character traits that orient us towards the right sort of action. Vices are those that bend us towards the wrong kinds of actions. And so how do we ultimately distinguish between, say, courage and recklessness? Well, courage is that virtue that is ultimately going to orient us towards action in which we exhibit that we fear God alone, but that we don't fear man. Whereas recklessness is ultimately ourselves being bent towards behavior that is ultimately going to be destructive rather than productive. Now, I think there's a lot more that can be said, but it is important to remember that virtues and vices are in some ways the same kind of thing. It's just that they they point us in opposite directions. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. In the last 25 years, There's been a sort of renaissance in theory about virtue, discussion of virtue. And so for the listener, as for the broader evangelical and Reformed community, this may be a somewhat new way of speaking or thinking, even though historically it's a very old way of thinking. Yes, that's right. Perhaps the the, the most influential person in bringing back a renaissance and thinking about virtues is a philosopher named Alistair McIntyre, who was from Scotland, but he taught at a number of major American universities. He spent a lot of time at Notre Dame especially. And McIntyre, again, without trying to get into all of his thought, really did make a call for a recovery of the idea of virtue, and virtue that is developed not in an individualistic way, but as part of communities. And there have been all sorts of people who have either inspired by McIntyre or in independent ways from a lot of different philosophical and theological perspectives have been really interested in trying to recover older thinking about virtue and thinking about biblical teaching about virtue uh, as well. Now, I'd have to say that there hasn't been a huge amount of literature produced among Reformed people, but there is a little bit. And I think personally that it's important for us to be talking about virtue. It is part of our Reformed tradition to take this seriously, 
And most importantly, I think it's a very important part of what we find Scripture teaching us about sanctification and about the moral life. Well, so let's go with that. What is it about Scripture that makes you think that virtue is significant and that we ought to be thinking about it and that we ought to be structuring our lives and incorporating that into the way we think about the Christian life? If I could focus on one thing, first of all, I guess I would put it this way, that we see Scripture concern not just about what we do, but what kind of people we are. It's not just about the external action, but it's about the heart. Now, it's not to say it's not concerned about external action. Obviously, it is. But what we find taught many places in Scripture is that it's actually from the heart that external conduct flows, and that if you're really interested in living the kind of external lives, obeying God's law, then we better be very concerned about the kind of people we are on the inside, and that apart from that inner reformation, there will not be that external reformation of, of conduct. And so with that basic idea, it makes sense that we would turn to Galatians 5, for example, when Paul is talking about the moral life of those who are, who are the justified, of those uh, for whom faith is working through love. Well, what does that mean? Well, he turns to the fruits of the Spirit. It's a list of virtues. It's not just memorizing the right rules, but it's actually being the right kind of person. And so that seems to me to be one very overriding reason why that we ought to be talking about this. But let me add one more thing, and that is it's important for us to recognize that when God sanctifies us by His Spirit, He's not turning us into a different kind of creature. We were created as human beings, we fell as human beings, and we're being redeemed as human beings. And part of our nature as human beings is that we have orientations we have traits of character, we have habits. And so if we're going to understand God's sanctifying work by His Spirit, we need to understand that He is going to be sanctifying our inclinations. He's going to be sanctifying our habits. He's going to be sanctifying our moral bent. And that really gets us right into this question of virtue. Is it fair to say that there's a lot more in Scripture about virtue, even in places where the word, whether it's power or, or whatever we're looking for, isn't there, the concept is there. Uh, for example, you went through a series of verses, one of which is Matthew 15, 11, in which our Lord says, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Elaborate on that. Explain why our Lord said that and why, for example, the prophets were so intent on prosecuting the Israelites for their hearts as much as their hands. Yeah, that's right. It does seem a major point of Christ's critique of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day and also the prophets, as you mentioned, that there's a serious problem of this external conduct that looks very good to the eye, but is actually not pleasing to the Lord. It's an insult to the Lord because it's done hypocritically, that our godly behavior has to begin from the inside, from a heart that is devoted to the Lord, a heart that loves what is good. I think you mentioned Philippians 4, when Paul tells us to think about things that are what, excellent. And... Oh, let me read it here. Sure. Philippians 4.8. This is from the ESV. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
Right. So our minds are to be directed towards those things which are excellent and lovely and praiseworthy. And really what Christ also exposes, and this is an important part of this larger picture, is that for those whose hearts are not right, they're not going to be able to maintain the external appearances forever in all circumstances, because we have the tendency to act in a way which is in accord with our heart. And so what we also find is Christ exposing the kind of behavior of the Pharisees that actually reflected what was in their hearts. They could put on a good show sometimes, but he can expose them uh, for all sorts of things that actually show that their hearts are rotten rather than focusing upon those things that are excellent and praiseworthy. In their setting, a lot of people saw the Pharisees as paragons and paradigms of piety, that they were the epitome of godliness, and people aspired to be like them. Yet, the Gospels show us again and again that what they really wanted to do was to murder Jesus. And so, they looked outwardly as if they were godly, but in reality, they were anything but godly. Yes, that's true, and I think that's a very important point for understanding or developing a distinctively Reformed understanding of virtue, that faith is presented in Scripture as really this font from which all of our good fruit flows. And that must be true of virtue, not just be talking about the external good work that we do. And one of the things that I try to do in my ethics class that I teach here is to help students think about how do these range of virtues that we are called to exhibit uh, as Christians, to think about hope and courage and humility and joy, just to name a few, how do we understand those as the fruits of faith? Can we really understand joy? Can we be joyful people apart from saving faith? Can we be truly courageous in the way that Christians are to be courageous, not necessarily in a stoic way of being courageous, without saving faith? Can we be people of hope without saving faith? And it is really crucial that we understand that these are not simply, even though our unbelieving neighbors may speak about these virtues, and they will speak about courage and hope and joy and these sorts of things, but there's a real sense in which only by saving faith can we exhibit these virtues in ways that Scripture is really calling us to. Preaching is so important because it's foolish according to the Scriptures. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. And by that, I think Paul meant that from a purely human point of view, preaching doesn't seem all that efficacious, all that sensible. There are voices in every period of the history of the church suggesting there are better ways to do things. We don't need preachers, we need priests. Or we don't need preachers, we need entertainers. But the Lord has appointed preachers because preachers bear His Word as it's written and apply it to the hearts and minds of God. God's people. And so the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the pastor is doing his work faithfully, the Word of God lives in his heart and is communicated to the hearts of God's people. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Is it possible to distinguish between civic virtue and, we might say, Christian virtue or sacred virtue? I think we have to. I mean, we can go all the way back to ancient Greek philosophy where they were comparing or analogizing the, the virtues of the individual soul with the, the virtues of the city, for example. Now, it does seem to me that we can talk on a broader social level about certain virtues or certain vices. I mean, we can just look at certain countries, uh, certain people groups, 
that have certain characteristics. And we may admire some of those. We may critique some of those. And at the same time, we recognize that not all people are associated with those people groups exhibit those same on an individual level. And certainly when we're thinking about Christians, the kinds of virtues that are necessary for holding a community together, a certain, we might talk about a certain sense of justice, a certain sense of industriousness, a certain sense of loyalty that all political communities may need to some degree if they're to survive over time. Those aren't the same things as that faith based joy and hope and courage and humility that we need to exhibit as those redeemed by Christ. Those faith-based virtues that you were describing are spirit-wrought, and so those are gifts of God. Now, it may be true in a broad providential common sense that civic virtues are also from God, but they're of a different sort. And Christians have an interest in both of those, right? We'd rather live in a community where people are you know, maintaining their houses, uh, raising their kids to keep them from being unholy terrors. We might not want to live in Bedford Falls without George Bailey. We don't want to live in, in whatever it was, Pottersville or, or whatever, a town bereft, really, of virtue, which in some ways looks like, <laughs> in some ways, I think uh, that the the culture in which we now live, it almost seems like, in, in some respects, and this is simplistic, I know, like we're moving from Bedford Falls to Pottersville in terms of the way people look at work and the kinds of civic virtues that we were just discussing. The way we might look at it is that those civic virtues that you're talking about are virtues of common grace, right? Is that despite the fall, God doesn't allow individual human beings or human societies to be as bad as they could be. And he restrains that full outbreaking of sin and does maintain certain levels of justice and industriousness and kindness in, in civil society. And we do have an interest in that. We, do, we would rather live in societies that exhibit more of that. We should be grateful for God's common grace in preserving measures of that in our societies. When we're talking about these Christian virtues, these biblical virtues that we are called to exhibit as believers, we're not talking about common grace. We're talking about saving grace, special grace. We're talking about that sanctifying work of the Spirit in justified Christians. And so here we, we, we really need to understand virtue as an essential part of this larger concept of sanctification. It is the Spirit who sanctifies. We don't sanctify ourselves. And so ultimately, it is the Spirit who works these Christian virtues in us. We can't just mechanically produce these virtues in us. At the same time, we have to remember that in our sanctified life, we're not called just to sit around and wait for the Spirit to work in us. We're called to be people of prayer who are begging God to sanctify us, to build these virtues within us. We are to attend to the means of grace. We can't neglect the Word of God and expect that the Spirit will be sanctifying us. We're also called to be striving for good. Scripture not only says that God sanctifies, God purifies, but we're also told to purify ourselves. We're told to take off the old man and to put on the new man. So we need to God does not sanctify us apart from our own striving after these virtues. So it's both and, right? It's both the case that the Spirit is at work in us. It is the Spirit who sanctifies, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, sanctification is a work of God's grace. Right. Nevertheless, Scripture also uses imperatives that we have to account for, and we are expected to reciprocally respond to God's grace in our lives. And as you say, do those imperatives. 
put to death the old man, strive to to confront and, and defeat sin within us, to turn repent of it, to acknowledge it, turn away from it, and to seek to cultivate in our own lives the good things, sanctification, the virtues, godliness, and all of the fruit that Paul describes. That's right. And so if you think back to what I said earlier, is that God saves us as human beings. And as human beings, we are the people who are oriented in certain ways. We have traits of character. And so he sanctifies us as, as those kind of people. Well, how do you gain habits just in ordinary life? How do you gain the habit of getting off at that freeway exit? Well, it's by a lot of repeated behavior. And that's a huge point repetition. Right. So that since God saves us as that kind of people who learn, who develop habits by repetition, I think that has to be part of the way we think about his sanctifying us with respect to virtue. So if a Christian is struggling with the vice of sexual lust and wants to gain, strives to gain the virtue of chastity, what does that person have to do? Well, the person needs to be praying for that diligently. The person needs to be attending to the Word of God and hearing the Word of God's message of grace. But that person also needs to strive towards chastity with all the strength that he has by God's grace to be doing things that are consistent with a chaste life. And we trust that that is part of the way that the Spirit works. Now, we have to also remember that sanctification is a mystery. So it's not as if there is any promise of a one-to-one correspondence between our doing certain things and our growth in these Christian virtues. And if we're all honest about our own Christian lives, our own process of sanctification, there's a whole lot we don't understand. God sanctifies you, Scott Clark, in a way that is not identical to my own Dave Andrunen process of sanctification. I have different experiences. I struggle with different vices from the ones that you struggle with. I mean, I would imagine. I don't know exactly that for a fact, but I'm, I'm assuming that that's the case. <laughs> that's probably true. Yeah. And we, ultimately, it is the Spirit who superintends and sanctifies us. And for some sins, we will struggle for years and decades and feel like we make little progress. And in other ways, we can look at our progress and be amazed at God's grace in changing us. So it really is a matter of this both and, is that we need to keep looking to the Spirit and know that He is the one. There's no growth in virtue apart from His blessing. But at the same time, we don't become—we're not called to be lazy. Uh, We're called to strive after these things. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So one way of describing sanctification is that it is the formation or the process of the formation of godly habits. I think that's an accurate and a very important thing to say. That's right. So, Pastor, this sounds great. I would love to do that. I'm not even sure where to start. What do I do? Well, I think for one thing, don't neglect the means of grace. Okay, so that's important because the temptation is to think that this is a purely private thing. That's right. An individual thing, something I need to man up about, grab my bootstraps and get to it. And not that there isn't any of that, but that fundamentally, it really begins outside of ourselves. That's right. The Spirit works through the Word, and so we don't expect the Spirit to be sanctifying us and building us up in godly habits apart from the Word of God. So we need to attend to the Word of God. We also need to be a praying people. We know that God answers prayer, that God honors the prayers of His people. And so we need to pray about our growth in virtue. This maybe gets to a third element, is that we need to be honest 
assessors of ourselves. We don't want to become obsessively introspective because that, that can be unhealthy, but we do need to have a certain sense of introspection in which we seek to be honest about ourselves, in which we're humble and we listen to other people, how other people see us, and to recognize where we struggle with sin and we need to pray about those things and be asking God to build virtue where now we are struggling with vice. And that honesty with oneself and with others is also a virtue. That is. Even our prayers and our attending to the means of grace and our honest self-assessment are themselves gifts of the Spirit. They're not things that we do first and then the Spirit gets to work. Even those things are evidence of the Spirit at work in us. Which is important because as we seek to cultivate virtue and to form godly habits, we don't want to descend back into the pre-Reformation pattern of thinking about virtue as something that we cultivate within ourselves and then present ourselves to God. So, when you look, for example, at Calvin's discussion in the Institutes of Virtue, much of it's negative because in his context, people so thought of virtue as something by which they were going to be able to commend themselves to God, in which they included grace, but in which they also included their own contribution, that he tends to speak mostly in negative categories about virtue. So, if we're thinking about it relative to justification, then we would speak of it the same way Calvin does. But Just to be very, very clear, you and I are talking about this in light of God's gracious, free justification of sinners on the basis only of the imputation of Christ's righteousness received through faith alone. That's right. And if I could just say a few things about individual virtues that actually demonstrate that. So I think I've mentioned joy uh, a, a couple of times. Can we conceive of Christian joy apart from our justification by faith? Well, no. If you think about what our joy is in the Christian life, it is a delight in God, a delight in His kingdom. It's not a kind of momentary happiness that you might get by taking a pill. It is a a heartfelt delight in God, but it's a delight in God, our Savior. Uh, It's a delight in a God who has reconciled us to Himself. How can we have delight in a God who holds us under His judgment, a God who condemns us? Joy makes sense for the justified believer. Or take courage. I mean, we hear a lot about courage in the secular world, and we do want a certain kind of secular virtue present in, say, our you know, people who are serving in the military or our police officers or our firefighters. But what is Christian courage? Does it make any sense apart from justification by faith? Well, no, it, it really doesn't, because our courage is not just you know, sort of a manly facing up to our fears. It is living in the reality of the fact that our God is sovereign, our God has conquered death in Jesus Christ, that our inheritance is secure, and that we need not fear man, we need not fear the devil, we need not fear the things of this world, ultimately, because our lot is secure in Christ. And I think you can go through all of these virtues, and if you think about them, you think, these really only make sense if we are the justified by faith. And so virtue doesn't get us to that point. Virtue can only emerge from that point. And encourage the listener that, in fact, God the Holy Spirit, through the due use of ordinary means, really is forming these virtues in him or her. Well, what I would say is that all believers have the Holy Spirit. Paul, for example, in Galatians 5, speaks of the fruits of the Spirit. 
The Spirit does his work. The Spirit sanctifies God's people. There is no justified Christian who is not a sanctified Christian. And to be a sanctified Christian means that the Spirit is at work building these fruits. It doesn't mean that every believer exhibits them to the same degree. We know that's not true. It doesn't mean that every Christian grows in every one of these virtues at the same pace because we know that that's not true. Sanctification is a mystery. Sanctification is individual. We all undergo sanctification, but our experience of it is very different. We're all justified in the same way, but our sanctification, if it happens in the same way, you know, by the word of God, by the spirit, but the shape of our sanctification is different for every one of us, but we can be confident that God will never fail to do that work in those that he has brought to himself. So the mirror by which you judge your sanctification and the formation of virtue in your character, your life, your habits, isn't necessarily your neighbor, whom you may admire. It's the promises that God has made to us in Christ. So ultimately, the mirror for your sanctification is Christ rather than your neighbor. That's right. And it's not to say you can't look at a godly believer in your congregation and see virtues that he or she exhibits and strive to be like that. I mean, I think that is part of what we're called to do, and we we should be encouraging one another. Uh, We should be trying to help each other to grow uh, in virtue. But even the godliest among us still struggles with serious vices, and we can't expect God to be dealing with us in exactly the same way that he deals with our neighbor. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.